Let me give you a, a few uh, statistics, as it were. The Philanthropy Roundtable reports American churches exceed $13 billion a year in giving to overseas relief organizations. Only the United States government spends more at $29 billion. The 600 Ministries and Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability spends $9.2 billion a year to provide food, medical care, education, adoption services, orphan care, post-prison assistance, substance abuse help, and other critical services at home and abroad. Researcher Arthur Brooks found that simply belonging to a congregation, whether one attends regularly or not, makes a person 32 points more likely to give, 88% to 56%. Brooks' study also says that people of faith were more likely than secularists to give money to non-religious charities, such as the United Way, 71% to 61%, and more likely to volunteer for secular causes such as the local PTA, 60% to 39%. As of 2012, World Vision spent roughly $2.8 billion annually to care for the poor. Lutheran Joan Crock gave one of the largest single donations to public charity when she donated $1.6 billion to the Salvation Army. Army. Army? Army. In 2010, U.S. churches spent, sent out 127,000 missionaries, nearly quadruple what the number two Brazil sent out. University of Pennsylvania study by Ram Canaan found that 91% of religious congregations in six metropolitan communities provided at least one social service. And 87% of the congregations in, the, in a Philadelphia survey provided at least one social service to their community. Further, Canaan estimated that urban churches can benefit their communities by as much as $470,000 a year. Question. Why do disciples of Jesus get such a kick out of giving and sharing and caring for others? So we want to talk about this morning. James chapter 1, verse 27, hear the word of God. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to worship. Father, we thank you for creating in our hearts through the redemption of Jesus a love for you that was never there before. Father, we're not here because we're good church people. There's no such thing as a good church person. There's only saved people or unsaved people. We have no credit. We take No uh, congratulatory words to ourselves when we think about our faith in you. It is a gift given from a generous and compassionate God. So, Father, when we consider this morning what it means to share the compassion of God with others, we pray that you would create within our hearts, that you would grow within our hearts, a desire to look more like you, to reflect your grace even more diligently to the world around us. Father, this creates, if we will let it, great joy in our lives uh, and uh, the presence of your generous spirit in our hearts can, can absolutely do miracles in our hearts and our minds. So Father, we pray for your truth to penetrate our minds today, our hearts today. Help us to, to worship you with our intellect. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it brings life in our lives. So, Father, I pray for every one of us here that you would speak to us. Lord, don't let me stand in the way. Please forgive my sin. We pray that Jesus would teach us, and we pray in his name. Amen. So the sermon in a sentence this morning is simply this. One of the highest callings in the life of a disciple is sharing God's compassion with others. Now, notice it says one of the highest calling. It's not the only calling. We have a calling to worship. We have, we have several callings. But one of our callings is to share God's compassion with others. And so the, the answer to my question, why do we get such a, a kick out of that? Why are, why are disciples of Jesus always across the board more generous than their, their unbelieving friends? It's because of the grace we've experienced and taken to heart. We don't get credit for being generous. God gets the glory for that. But as God works in your life and as God works in my life, and it begins to sink in what he's actually done for us and how desperately we needed a savior and how powerless we were to save ourselves. And in fact, how inclined we weren't to pursue him, we find out that he pursued us. It changes our hearts. It changes the way we think and the way we live. So we're going to look at that this morning using James 1 as kind of the foundational verse. But this is, this is very much a topical sermon. We're going to bounce around from scripture verse to scripture verse. They'll all be on the screen. You can follow along there. But we want to look at three reasons why we live it up through showing God's compassion to others. The first is this. We see God's love through his law. So over the next couple minutes, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament law, back in the Old Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Now, a lot of people who don't know too much about the law, but they hear that word and they think about the Old Testament, they tend to think, well, that's when God was in a bad mood. <laughs> that's when God was kind of grumpy. That's when he was mad at everybody before Jesus came. And he gave us a whole bunch of rules that kind of ruined all our fun and, and kind of made life miserable. Well, I'll let you be the judge of the God who writes these verses for us if you think that's really a cruel, punishing, hateful God, or rather, if it's a God who shows compassion and kindness and mercy through his law. First thing we need to see in Leviticus 19 is that God rescues the helpless. God is talking to the people of Israel. They're on the way to the promised land, and he's giving them some guidelines. And he says this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That doesn't sound like a very mean God to me. That sounds like a God who realizes people's proclivity to treat strangers poorly. And he doesn't want to see that happen. And he actually uses a bit of history out of the nation of Israel to remind them that they were the helpless ones. When they were living in Egypt, they were not tourists. When they were living in Egypt, it wasn't on a, on a study visa where they, they got to kind of just do, go wherever they wanted to go and do whatever they wanted to do. They were enslaved in the land of Egypt for almost 400 years. Generation after generation after generation of Israelites knew nothing but bondage. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to set you free. I'm going to give you a land of your own. And when I give you that land, you remember your God. You remember my compassion. You remember my generosity. You remember my love. You remember that I rescue the helpless. Don't you dare treat a stranger like you've been treated before. God reminds us that he rescues the helpless. God also reminds the people of Israel that they're commanded to live out this grace of God. Deuteronomy says this, 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He reminds the people of Israel where they've come from again, as we've just mentioned, but he commands them to live out this grace. He says, I'm the mighty one, I'm the savior, but I'm also the gracious one. I don't take any bribes, I'm not partial. I'm the one who loves the the, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, all equally, and you are to reflect my character to the world around you. Now, those two commands are, are very clear and very direct, but they're also theological in nature. There isn't a, a practical application yet. So you're kind of left wondering, okay, well, what does that mean day in and day out? You know, is, is I, if I were in ancient Israel and I was living my life and I read those things, I'd say, well, how do I practically speaking be kind to the, to the widow or the orphan? I might not necessarily know one firsthand or we don't necessarily have any strangers or newcomers in our neighborhood. How do I live this out? Well, God gives very practical application to this to the nation of Israel. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So there's number one, when you have a field and you're harvesting and you forget some of the crop out in the field, you leave it and you say providentially, God made that slip my mind so that somebody else would have dinner tonight. But it goes on when you beat your olive tree. So now we're getting into what you need to, to have to cook a meal and to flavor a meal, right? When you uh, beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It is for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow. So now we have the grain and now we have the, the oil to cook. But God goes even further and he says this. And when you gather grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. God even takes them to the, to the libation for dinner, which very clearly is wine, right? Which makes me really happy because I like wine, okay? A whole meal is set before who? The stranger, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan. Not the crumbs from the table, not the leftovers that nobody else would eat, but the very best of the harvest, We're to go over at one time and we're to leave the rest so that those who are going without will have the opportunity to provide for themselves, right? God doesn't say pick it and go take it to them. He says leave it for them to come gather for themselves. There's a very practical application there for us. Hold our hands open when it comes to the possessions of our lives. But there's a practical side of this. It's not just theoretical. It gets down into how we live in our community on a regular basis. Perhaps you've heard of Bob Pierce before. In 1947, Bob Pierce was with an organization called Youth for Christ, which is still in existence today. And he uh, had an invitation to go to China and to kind of preach, kind of like Billy Graham crusade in the olden days when he would go around from city to city. And, And Pierce was on a team that was traveling around China and he was preaching the gospel. And they came to one town and he met a woman there who was a missionary and a teacher. She had, she had lived in that community for quite some time, for about 12 years. And she had been teaching children there and living there and, and trying to share the gospel there. And while she was talking to Pierce, when she first met him, she had a small child in her hand. And Bob Pierce said, well, who is this? And she said, we don't know. This is an orphan. 
We don't know who the mother or the father is or grandparent. We don't know any family members. Nobody in our village has recognized this child. They literally have been abandoned. And then she looked at Bob Pierce and she said this, and what will you do? That's a great question. What will you do about this child? And Pierce was just struck to his core. He's a young guy. He was about 22 years old when this experience happened to him. He reached in his pocket. He had five bucks. That's all he had. And he gave her the five bucks. He said, I'm going to give you this $5 and I want your address. Every month going forward, I'm going to send you this $5 so that at least this kid lives. At least this kid has a chance to make it. I don't know if you know this or not, but World Vision last year, 4 million children in 100 different countries around the world. Bob Pierce founded World Vision out of that one experience, out of that one practical application question, what will you do? Pierce retired in 1967, and in 1970, he found himself bored living in North Carolina and didn't want to really be retired, so he started up a little hobby on the side, uh, met a guy named Franklin Graham, and together they started an organization called Samaritan's Purse. This last year, Samaritan's Purse, $300 million in relief and development in every corner of the globe. What will you do? God doesn't leave us with theory. He gives us the application, and then he holds us responsible to see his love and his law and be agents of that love so that this world is a different place. When we don't follow him, when we ignore this, he offers a stern warning. Ancient Israel got way off track. They were not generous. They were not gracious. They were not showing God's compassion, and God called them out on it. Later, after the law of God that we have early on, we now come to the prophets of God. In Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah, speaking for God, says this, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Those are the religious festivals of the day. Okay, so just think like Good Friday, Easter, Christmas Eve, you know, when we come together, we worship and we celebrate our faith and God says, I'm looking at you coming and celebrating your faith and it literally makes me sick. You have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Well, what what kind of evil? What kind of terrible things are we doing? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What God says is just treat everybody with dignity. Treat everyone with respect. Jesus says later on, love your neighbor as yourself. But God says if, if, if you call yourself by my name and you don't exercise my character in the world around you, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to tell you that your worship is empty and meaningless because your worship just isn't on a Sunday morning or your worship wasn't just at at the temple in Jerusalem. Your worship is every moment of every day, every breath you take is to be lived in worship of God and our God is a compassionate God. And our God is a gracious God, and we're to live that out for the world to see. God gave us his love through this law that directs us to care for others. Secondly, we see not only God's love through his law, but we see God's wisdom through generosity. We're going to spend a couple of minutes in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 
chapter 14, verse 13. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults who? Insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Do you want to revere God in your life? Do you want to give your God glory would be another way to say it. Do you, do you want to live a life that reflects your relationship with God? Don't oppress the poor. Give to God through caring for others. Go back if you would one slide, please. Um, no, sorry. Go, yep, you were there. Sorry. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors God being generous to the needy. And it isn't just financially. You might have a, a friend who's needy of some of your time. You might have somebody who's just going through a very difficult time and they just need you to stop and pause for 10 minutes and put your arm around them and tell them you love them and invest in them some time and some kind words. That might be the way that you give to somebody today, but are we understanding that we're honoring God through that generosity? Not only revering God, but also do we see the common image of God in all of humanity? Whoever is generous lends to the Lord, right? And he will repay him for his deed. That's an interesting statement there because you think, well, I'm, I'm lending to somebody I'm gonna, or I'm gonna just give somebody some money. When's the last time that, that I, I saw somebody on a street corner and I handed him a couple bucks and I actually thought, I just saw Jesus. I, I just kind of saw, saw an image of God there. I, I, saw, I saw part of the glory of God. I was driving uh, down by Barnes Jewish uh, yesterday afternoon. There's a guy on the street corner. I rolled down my window. I gave him a couple bucks. I didn't have that thought pass through my mind. And I go, wait a minute, that guy's made in the image of God. He, he's bearing some of the image of God. I want to love him. Well, the thought didn't go through my mind. We need to understand that all of humanity is made in the image of God. And when we care for another, we're actually caring for the Lord is the way he puts it. That's an astounding thought. Can you imagine Jesus coming up to you and saying, I forgot my wallet. Can you give me five bucks? <laughs> we would fight each other over that to be able to give Jesus five bucks, Right? She said, I want, I want to run over to McDonald's and get a Big Mac. Oh, oh, let me take you to Citizen Kane's. You don't want to go to, you don't want to go to McDonald's. Let me take you to get a good steak. And why don't you come over, spend the night. Let, you know, we'll put you in our room and we'll give you, and, uh, but we pass people made in that image every day and we don't give it a second thought. And we call ourselves disciples. And we forget the common image of God in all of humanity. The author of Proverbs also tells us that there's a time when generosity actually becomes a way of life for us. In Proverbs 22, 9, he says this, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. So the idea of a bountiful eye is kind of just the way you look at the world. Whatever, you know, your world life view is what, is what we called it in, in college and in seminary, kind of your philosophy of life. You have a world life view that is going to dictate if you're old enough who you're going to vote for in this election. You see the world kind of this way or that way, and you're either going to vote for that person or that person. How does your world and life view uh, impact the way you care for folks who are needy? Well, Proverbs says that the person who looks at the world just kind of with a generous open hand is a person who is honoring God. So God calls us to not just have this as a passing experience occasionally, but actually to make this a way of life. I mentioned earlier Bob Pierce. I want to mention Everett Swanson. Everett Swanson in the 19, early 1950s was a Presbyterian pastor who was a minister in Korea, just a, a little, little ways away from China, about the same time that, that Bob Pierce was there. Everett Swanson was uh, walking uh, by the place where he was living on a cold, cold January morning in 1950 in Korea. 
And he noticed the kind of the street collectors, like kind of, you know, the, 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 uh, the garbage folks that come around, pick up, pick up the garbage and put it in the truck. He noticed them working down the street and they were taking piles of rags and throwing them into the truck. And as he walked by them and got closer, he realized that they weren't piles of rags. There were children who had died in the night, frozen to death, died of exposure. And he stood there and he looked at that and he said, there's got to be a way to make a difference. He looked at it with a bountiful eye. Two years later, in 1952, he opened his first orphanage with 35 children. And he was so excited to begin to make a difference in those children's lives. But he said, you know, maybe there can be more that's done. Maybe, maybe we can be part of something that could grow beyond just this. Last year, Compassion International, 1.3 million children in 26 countries around the world were given food, and clothing, and a Christian education centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ because of whatever Swanson began in 1952, and God did subsequently through him over many, many years. Can you say, can I say that we have a bountiful eye? It's just the way, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we look at the world. God's love through his law, God's wisdom through generosity, and thirdly, Jesus as our living example. In um, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is coming home, and he's in it. He goes to church on the Sabbath, which is his, his local or his normal custom, and he's a, he's a young man, and he's given the scripture to read. And we pick this up in Luke 4. He's in Nazareth, where he brought up his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor the mission of Jesus, as described by the prophet Isaiah several hundred years before Jesus came to earth, as clearly stated by Jesus. What does he say? Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you want to know what Jesus is all about, maybe you have a life mission statement. I have a life mission statement. You want to know what Jesus' life mission statement is? There it is. It's right there, to care for those around him who can't care for themselves. And Jesus is bringing a spiritual new life through his death on the cross and his resurrection, but he also calls his disciples not only to offer that new life in his name, but also to care for the physical needs of those around him. And if you read the Gospels, if you know anything at all about the Gospels, Jesus spent a ton of time healing, caring for, relieving Bringing, bringing, bringing comfort to the downtrodden and the broken, bringing food to those who had none, sight to the blind, uh, new legs to the crippled, death, uh, life to those who had actually died. Jesus rose people from the dead because that was his mission. I love Green Tree's mission. Grow disciples, renew communities, and plant churches. I believe that's the lofty goal we should have in following Jesus. Is a part, do we understand though that it's part of, we're part of his mission. We're not inviting Jesus to bless Green Tree. We're praying fervently that we won't mess it up and get it wrong and that we will actually follow Jesus in his mission. But he doesn't just state his mission, he also gives us his paradigm for greatness in his kingdom. 
This is a passage in Matthew, and he says, Jesus calls his disciples to him. He said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They're great ones to exercise authority over them. Not among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the son of man, and now he's talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, greatness in my kingdom is measured through service. If you want to be great, you'll roll up your sleeves and you'll care for those around you whom no one else will care. He takes it even a step further when he gives us some direction in Matthew chapter 5 about, about how far we're to go when someone asks us for relief. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In other words, give him not only your jacket, but give him your shirt, right? And if anyone forces you to go a mile with him, go too. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse uh, the one who would borrow from you. We've had an interesting experience in our new home. We've had lots of interesting experiences in our new home. But one of the interesting experiences we've had in our new home is a, is a rise of the number of people who walk through our door and need help. They need financial help. When we were in the building right over here, we had folks come in, you know, uh, maybe once or twice a week, maybe three or four a month at the very most. So we have always set money aside for that. Uh, but we find ourselves in a real pickle right now. We find ourselves unable to keep up with the folks who come in with need. Can you imagine walking through a door? Your sole purpose is to go to say to somebody, I can't provide and I need help. Imagine how hard that would be. Imagine how difficult it would be to, to admit that you're at a place where perhaps your electricity is about to be turned off. Maybe you, 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 you don't have the means to provide food for your children for the next few days or weeks. Imagine how difficult that would be. Can you imagine finding out that, sorry, we've spent all our money this month that we, we don't have anything left for you. I hate that answer. I hate it with passion. But that's where we find ourselves right now as a church. We're, we're trying to figure out how to care, genuinely care, and bring relief for the people who need relief. We need to do much more than that. We need, we need to bring opportunity for those who are looking for a way to work out of poverty. We need to provide coaching and care and, and, and a holistic approach to this. But today, right now, we, we, don't, we haven't set enough, enough funds aside just to take care of the relief that we need to take care of on a regular basis. Maybe you have an idea on how, to, how we could fix that. Please come talk to me if you do. But if we're going to follow Jesus' mission, if we're going to follow his kingdom paradigm, if we're going to follow his direction, that's not a good answer. Jesus says, don't refuse the one who needs the help. We've got to tackle that because God's put us in a place where we're, now we're, we're findable. We're not kind of a little brick building over to the side. We're in this wonderful new building. Part of that is determining how God can use us to care for those who need relief because Jesus gives us the example himself. He also gives us the supreme example in his sacrifice. In Romans chapter 5, Paul reminds us about the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he says this, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he takes it even a step further in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, all right? So we were, we were weak, we were helpless, we were unable to rescue ourselves, and God came along and he rescued us. 
but it was worse than that. We were, we were weak, but the energy that we used was, was not good enough, and we kept failing time after time. We never did the things we should do. That's what it means to sin. Sin doesn't mean that you rebel. It simply means you don't do the good stuff you should do, and we're sinners. But then it gets even worse. When we were in active rebellion against God, Jesus looked at it and said, I'm going to die for them. So I, I take us back to the example. I said, put yourself in the shoes of walking through those doors, right? What ought to happen Regardless of how much money we have or don't have, people ought to be treated with dignity. How dare we judge anybody else? We are the weak. We are the ones who fall short. We are the ones who are in open rebellion against God. Unless Jesus intervened for you and unless Jesus intervened for me, we are hopelessly lost. We need to live as people who are redeemed, not as people who are self-righteous but as people who understand what it means to receive grace, to receive mercy in time of trouble so that we can then turn around and care for others, which finally, you're probably saying, brings us to James chapter one, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions, to keep oneself unstained from the world. God intends your life and my life as disciples of Jesus to reflect his mercy. We're commanded here, if you jump to the end of the verse, to reject the world's priorities. If you think about uh, keeping oneself unstained from the world, maybe think about all, the, all the evil things, all the, all the stuff that people do that you, know, you don't hear about, but it's, it's really the awful stuff. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about being stained by a philosophy of life that omits God from the center. So it's not what we're doing, but it's how we're thinking. And you cannot embrace a godless philosophy and care for orphans and widows. If you embrace a godless philosophy, eventually you're just going to care about yourself. You're going to become self-centered. When you take God out of the equation, everything changes. And Green Tree Community Church today stands on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the authority of God's word. But for how long? For a couple years? For 10 years? For 15 years? For a generation? For two generations? How long before we, have, we become victims or, or we perpetrate uh, missional drift? And that's a term that's business as well as not-for-profit, where you lose sight of your original goals and you become something you were never intended to be. We have to be so careful to avoid a man-centered, godless philosophy of the world, not because we're self-righteous, but because it could lead us away from the heart of God and his care for the weakest among us. I want to read for you a charter that was put together for a school in the United States uh, back in the 1600s. The language is somewhat difficult to understand. I'm only going to read about a third of it, but hopefully you can follow along. After God, and God is in big caps, had carried us safe to New England... And we built our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and led civil government. One of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to prosperity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present minister shall lie in the dust. You ever thought about that? When your present minister is going to lie in the dust? (laughs) It's going to happen someday. What will you do after that? That was kind of the notion. We should, we should start thinking about education around here. Over the college is Master Dunster, placed as president, a learned and considerable and industrious man who has so trained up his pupils in tongue, 
and arts and so season them with the principles of divinity and Christianity that we have to our great comfort beheld their progress in learning and godliness. It's a Christian school. The latter has been manifested in sundry of them by savory things of their spirits and their godly versation, insomuch that we are confident if these early blossoms may be cherished and warmed with the influence of friends of learning and lovers of this pious work, they will, by the help of God, come to happy maturity in a short time. Over our college are 12 overseers chosen by the general court. Six of them are magistrates, and the other six of them are ministers. So began Harvard University. Mission drift. Might not happen in 10 years. Might not happen in 20 years. But if we do not lay a foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we do not actively pursue his goals, And his passions, you could be reading about Green Tree Community Church in some number of years. We cannot embrace a godless philosophy because it will move us away from the care, the ministry of the orphan and the widow and the stranger. At the same time, time around the orphan, time spent with the widow draws us into the heart of God. You know, Mother Teresa lived for 11 years in Calcutta before she started her ministry to the poorest of the poor. She spent those 11 years working hard. She was a teacher. Uh, she was a nurse. She was a servant. But it wasn't until she really you know, got entrenched in that society and began to see that there needed to be something radically more than she was providing that she needed to, to move in a, in a more generous direction. But it was because she spent time with the poor that she saw it. Brothers and sisters, if we really want to live it up, if you really want to have some fun, How about we spend our lives centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have his heart for the poor. We have his passion for being compassionate to God's people. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to bring everyone to Jesus. Not everyone who comes across your path or my path is going to be needy physically. They may just be needy spiritually. But for those who find themselves in the lower parts of our, of our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our community? Will we be the hands and feet of Jesus? Will we live in such a way with so much joy in our hearts, trusting in God for his provision for us, that our hands are freely open to care for those who he brings across our path? By God's grace, may it be so. Will you pray with me? Father, we are challenged by your word. Our hearts are stirred at the thought of you allowing your son to leave the glory and the majesty of heaven and to give himself so that his enemies could be saved. It's a generosity that's almost impossible to understand. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would drill that deep into our hearts so that as part of the life of Green Tree is caring for those around us who need help, within our congregation and on the outside of our congregation, but in our community, Father, that you would give us great wisdom. That you would not not just give us hearts that are, are willing to help, but that you would show us the right pathway. Father, we could do a lot of things wrong trying to help people. So Lord, we need your guidance. We need your wisdom. But Father, we do need the, the passion of Jesus 
to proclaim good news to those who are broken, to bind up wounds, to bring people to him. Father, by your grace, make us that people. We pray in your name. Amen.